Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at That's Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to the Seneca Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs from China, produced in partnership with SupChina. Subscribe to SupChina's daily email newsletter to stay on top of the latest news from China, or download our new and improved smartphone app, or visit the website at SupChina.com. It's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. While you're there, check out our new business news podcast, the Caixin Seneca Business Brief, for a weekly roundup of top stories from Caixin, China's authoritative source for business and financial news. I'm Kaiser Guo. I'm coming to you today from the Harvard Kennedy School in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Joining me from the thickets and brambles, the Goldcorn Hauler out in the rural wilds in Nashville, Tennessee, is, of course, Jeremy Goldcorn, editor-in-chief of Sup China and Greek people are, Jeremy. <laughs> Kaiser, uh, I think your southern accent you is getting, getting worse better? now that you live in the south. It's getting worse. <laughs> oh, okay. All right. Well, I, I know it doesn't sound remotely Tennessee. It's just sort of a generic redneck accent. Anyway. I, it's I, a it's redneck accent as me, done by bi-coastal elites is what it is. But <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Guilty as charged. Okay. Anyway, uh, by the time you hear this podcast, Donald Trump will have passed the 100-day mark, something that, of course, he has written off in a tweet as a ridiculous standard, but one that, like many ideas he he has once discarded, he once embraced loudly and repeatedly. So another date that has come and gone is that date in mid-April, I think it was around the 15th, I believe, that the uh, president would have had the opportunity to formally direct the Treasury Department to label China a currency manipulator, something he had promised to do on day one. Uh, this particular about-face was actually quite sensible, and I, I dare say actually fact-based. And while few expected that he'd actually go through with a, the currency manipulation thing, the decision did take some tension out of the relationship. Uh, the currency decision came just a week after the meeting at Mar-a-Lago between President Trump. Trump and Chinese President Xi Jinping, which, of course, we discussed at some length with Acting Assistant Secretary of State Susan Thornton some weeks ago, and which, by all accounts, did, despite the little Syrian surprise delivered over dessert, help uh, establish a better relationship between the two presidents. So on the surface, at least, Sino-American tensions appear to have relaxed considerably. And yet a number of areas of tension and potential flashpoints remain. People still regularly raise the specter of the so-called Thucydides trap, the risk of conflict between a rising and an incumbent power, casting China as Athens and the US as Sparta. The larger geostrategic picture with Trump pulling out of TPP and some observers suggesting that the Trump administration is rethinking the so-called pivot or rebalancing uh, or whatever you like to call it, the tilt to Asia, <laughs> and perhaps ceding a de facto sphere of influence to China. Yeah, yeah. So uh, today we are deeply honored to have with us Professor Joseph Nye, Professor Nye Joe, if we may, uh, is is Harvard University Distinguished Service Professor at the Harvard Kennedy School. He has served 
as Assistant Secretary of Defense for International Security Affairs, as Chair of the National Intelligence Council, and Deputy Undersecretary of State for Security Assistance, Science and Technology. He is one of the world's foremost thinkers on issues of international security, and he is, of course, widely known as the man who coined and defined the term soft power, about which China has had something of an obsession. So we'll be talking about where things stand and where things might be going in the U.S.-China relationship, about this idea of the Thucydides trap and other perhaps more relevant traps that China will have to avoid. And of course, we're going to be talking about soft power, about how China has done to date in that regard, and whether Xi Jinping perhaps has new opportunities to build Chinese soft power in the era of Trump. Joseph Nye, welcome to Seneca. Nice to be with you. Thank you for being with us, Joe. If if I may start with a softball about soft power, um, you coined the term soft power or publicized it, as I understand it, in your 1990 book, Bound to Lead, The Changing Nature of American Power. Could you refresh our memories with a brief definition of soft, soft power as you understood it in 1990? And if your definition would differ if you're writing about it for the first time today, perhaps say something about this. And if I may be permitted a three-part question, how has China fared when it comes to soft power over these years? And have China's efforts to extend its soft power changed your thinking on the concept at all? That's not four parts, Jeremy. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll, I'll uh, pick I'll any part start you at like. The beginning. <laughs> Let's start with the definition. I'll start at the beginning. I was writing a book in uh, 1989 about the supposed decline of American power, which... Uh, my friend Paul Kennedy, the famous Yale historian, had uh, written The Rise and Fall of the Great Powers had become a bestseller. He said America was in uh, decline. I didn't think so, and I sort of totaled up American military power and American economic power resources. And I said, there's still something missing, and that's ability to attract others, not just to coerce them or pay them. And I called that soft power. So soft power is the ability to affect others to get what you want through attraction and persuasion rather than coercion and payment. Uh, it's a word or a term uh, that we all use every day. I mean, uh, if you look at uh, uh, how we relate to other people, we rarely just hit them over the head or pay them. We try mostly to attract and persuade them. It's the heart and soul of democratic politics. But in international politics, we often neglect it. We spend so much time on bombs and bullets and dollars that we forget that attraction and persuasion also matter. Indeed, what's interesting is if you look at uh, uh, Trump's budget advisor, uh, Mick Mulvaney, he announced that we have just developed a hard power budget. We're taking money away from the State Department and the United Nations and putting it into the Defense Department. Uh, but what's interesting is that General Mattis, the Secretary of Defense, said if you starve the State Department, you're going to have to buy me more bullets. <laughs> so I think uh, soft power does matter, and that's, that's uh, where it came from. What I mean by it, it really hasn't changed in meaning uh, from now, uh, uh, or from then and now, um, but it has become picked up quite broadly by a lot of different statesmen, and often it's misused to mean anything that isn't uh, military, but in fact, that's not what it means. What it means is the ability to attract and persuade. 
And uh, uh, in that sense, uh, it's interesting to see that going to the other part of your question that uh, China has gotten very interested in soft power. Hu Jintao told the 17th Party Congress in 2007 that China needed to develop its soft power. And what was interesting about that is China, it obviously has grown greatly in its hard power, both its uh, economy and its military, where China was increasing its military budget by double digits every year. Uh, But one of the problems is if your hard power grows too greatly, uh, you scare your neighbors. And if you combine your hard power with soft power, in which you're attractive to others, then they're less likely to form coalitions to resist you. So when Hu Jintao said we need to do more to develop our soft power, that was what I call a smart power strategy, the ability to combine hard and soft power to get what you want. And since then, there's been uh, uh, just an enormous attention and investment in uh, soft power on the part of China. And uh, uh, it's uh, interesting to me to see uh, a concept which I developed as an analytical concept uh, taken seriously by leaders of the world's largest or most populous country uh, as a part of a strategy for them to increase their position in the world. Part of me wonders, though, whether the first rule of soft power ought to be don't talk about soft power. (laughs) Well, if you talk too much about it, it becomes trans. It, it becomes uh, uh, it looks like propaganda. Right. Sometimes people think soft power means uh, the same thing as propaganda, but it doesn't. Mm-hmm. Uh, the th- trouble with propaganda is it's not credible, and if something's not credible, it doesn't attract. So the measure of soft power is the ability to attract. So if all I do is increase my broadcasting, I turn. Uh, Xinhua or CCTV into 24-7 news internationally and put out more and more broadcasting by the government. Uh, But the broadcasts seem a bit fragile, a bit slanted. Uh, It doesn't produce much soft power. And so how would you assign a grade if you were forced to to uh, the soft power progress since 2007 when Hu Jintao well, China, made it a priority? Well, China has done well in some areas and not in others. Mm-hmm. Uh, take the areas where it's done well. One is China gets a good deal of uh, soft power. It attracts a number of others by its economic success. I mean, China has had a... Uh, an economic miracle. It's raised hundreds of millions of people out of poverty. Uh, It's uh, done a very impressive job of uh, developing the country. And uh, that attracts people to China. It's also been attractive in terms of its um, traditional culture. Uh, Chinese culture has always been attractive. uh, uh, But uh, the extent to which it is able to pay more attention or get more attention paid to that culture by establishing Confucius Institutes at, uh, at foreign universities around the world, uh, that helps also to increase China's soft power. And uh, so long as it doesn't allow those Confucius Institutes to be misused for propaganda, but if it keeps them straight, uh, 
basically uh, teaching people about Chinese culture. It's a good investment in Chinese soft power. China's also uh, received a good deal of soft power from certain events, the Beijing Olympics, where was a good example of an event or a set of events that um, increased the attractiveness of China. The Shanghai Expo a year later was another example in which mm-hmm. uh, China was able to display uh, some of the glories of its traditional culture, and many people uh, were impressed. I found going through the Chinese pavilion at Shanghai to uh, be, be very reaffirming Absolutely. for Chinese culture. Maybe not so much, though, with the Olympics. Though. I mean, I, my, my distinct sense was that as much as it was intended to inspire, uh, it, it also maybe had the collateral effect of intimidating people. You had, you know, well, the juggernaut of, on display. All this, you know, these coordinated people banging on what seemed like war drums to a lot of people. One of the problems is that there are attendant events, and some of those were not good for Chinese soft power. For example, uh, repressing mm-hmm. uh, dissent in Tibet or among the, uh, the Uyghurs in Xinjiang, for example, mm-hmm. uh, that drew attention to problems which were not good for Chinese soft power. So you're right, there was a, something of a mixed bag on it. But I think when people looked at Ai Weiwei's Bird's Nest Stadium and said, that's really quite brilliant. Ironically, uh, Ai Weiwei's. <laughs> <laughs> yes, ironic. If, if the Chinese would just do more to use Ai Weiwei, he's a great source of soft power. Isn't that really, uh, in some ways, the heart of the issue? I mean, I can see China's soft power growing because of economics, You know, possibly the One Belt, One Road plant to you know, connect and uh, connect the infrastructure and communications of Eurasia will will develop other types of soft power. But when it comes to culture, when it comes to music, theater, film, dance, literature, even video games, what, the top-down structure of China is a huge problem. So you do have somebody like Ai Weiwei, who in fact was taking part in developing China's soft power and became disillusioned and then essentially persecuted by the government. And, and became a sort of a force to undermine it. A force to undermine it. No, no, I think, that's, uh, I think that's right. I mean, if I, I'd only given you the positive side of the ledger. Now, yeah. Yeah. now let me give you the negative side of the, of the ledger, which is China is going to be hard-pressed to increase its soft power as long as it uh, fails to unleash the talents of Chinese civil society. Absolutely. And the Communist Party demanding control on everything in Chinese life diminishes the role of civil society. If you look at American soft power, or British, or or uh, basically any country's soft power comes primarily from civil society, not from government broadcasting. I mean, right. governments can play a role, but but uh, American soft power comes more from uh, our universities uh, at the high end of culture to uh, uh, Hollywood, if you want, uh, and pop songs at the lower end of culture sure. or Blue jeans popular and rock ends. And roll. Yeah. Right. And those are great sources of soft power. But if the party is, in, is insistent upon controlling all that, then it undercuts itself. I, I gave a lecture in. Uh, in uh, uh, Beida, Peking University, in uh, oh, a few years ago, they asked me to talk about soft power. And I said, you know, unleash civil society. Use Ai Weiwei as a positive force. That's and right. there was sort of a 
<laughs> little tittering, tittering <laughs> that went through the through the crowd as I uh, said the name, and I think my sponsors were slightly embarrassed. But but I think that is the is the truth. Um, you can't leave uh, an empty chair at the Nobel Prize ceremony for all the world's television sets to see that Lu Xiaobo is locked up rather right. than there receiving the Peace Prize without damaging your soft power. And and that's going to take a while for China to uh, to overcome that. Right. What's in, But that's only one of the two major problems China has with its soft power. The other is uh, basically its conflicts over territory with its neighbors and the problem of nationalism that makes it so intractable. For example, uh, if you set up a Confucius Institute in Hanoi, but in the meantime, you're uh, shooting at Vietnamese sailors in the paracels, uh, you don't increase your soft power much. Right, of course. And, uh, or the same with the Philippines, or the same with uh, disputes with India and Arundel Pradesh and so forth. And so the, uh, the fact that you have territorial disputes with half a dozen countries means that uh, China has a hard time increasing its attractiveness in those countries. And when you say to Chinese uh, friends uh, in the government, why don't you relax? Why don't you take the longer view that as a great power in the region, you're going to do all right. You don't have to push these little disputes to the extent that you do. In a word, relax. Right, relax. <laughs> um, and their action reaction is, if I relax, there's somebody else in the office next door who's going to take my job. Or uh, if putting it another way, the 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 competition to be nationalistic at home makes it very hard to uh, avoid exacerbating the nationalism of your neighbors uh, overseas. And I think that's a real problem for China. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so. China's soft power circumstances is something I've, I've given quite a bit of thought to over the years. Uh, one idea that I played with early on was that it was it was really sort of a, a function of, of China's relative economic strength. I, I looked at Japan, for example, and um, when its soft power peaked, if we can say that it peaked, uh, when American kids were all reading manga and watching mm-hmm. anime, when when their parents all started well, driving Japanese cars, not just because of the the, the gas mileage, but because they were really fine vehicles when we all saw Kurosawa movies and knew the Japanese names for all the sushi items that we ordered. This was, you know, the 1980s. And, and, and clearly it was a, it was a time when, you know, Japan was really riding high and it was snapping up real estate in major American cities and buying large stakes in major American corporations. Uh, but now, you know, China may be approaching maybe in an analogous stature, uh, to what Japan had in, in at least the mid 80s. Uh, but, I don't see stirrings of real sort of soft power influence in the U.S. or the developed West. Um, well, wealth, though, is part of the formula for soft power success. I mean, you, you well, wealth about, is right? wealth is part of it, but it's right. not sufficient. Right. Necessary. There's, there's a um, uh, consultancy in London called Portland that publishes an index every year called the Soft Power Thirty, and it ranks countries uh, from 
1 to 30 in terms of their soft power. China, I think, comes out around number 28, 27 or 28. Um, So it hasn't gotten the return on its investment that it would like. In addition, uh, if you look at polls, Pew polls, for example, mm-hmm. in uh, countries, the only of various uh, regions, the only area where China is about equal to the U.S. in soft power is in Africa. Right. But in Asia, its own neighborhood, it's not. It lags well behind the U.S. Well, much, yeah. And certainly in Europe and North America, those uh, civil rights, human rights issues. Uh, get in the way. In Asia, I think it probably has to do with conflicts with your neighbors. But in in uh, Europe or North America, I think it has more to do with, uh, with the repression uh, of human rights. Um, may I ask another question about the Chinese approach to soft power? And I don't want to come off as an essentialist, but is there something about um, Chinese culture that also makes it difficult? And I, I'd like to just present two examples. Um, just in the last couple of weeks, there's been news of quite a lot of uh, Beijing city government mandated destruction of uh, illegal uh, structures in hutongs, in the narrow alleyways that make up the traditional central Beijing, and also of sort of informal shops and bars in Sanlitun Bar District. Uh, now, both Beijing's hutongs and the the little kind of dirty little bar street that has been destroyed over the last few days in Beijing were actually parts of Beijing that certainly foreigners gravitated to because they had a lot more charm and color uh, and humanity and life than a lot of Beijing's more famous big boulevards. Um, But the Beijing city government certainly doesn't see this charm at all. Um, Another example Uh, that anyone who's eaten at Chinese restaurants in the United States will know. There's one decent Chinese restaurant in Nashville. And if you go there during lunchtime, they don't give you the proper menu. They give you the kind of American Chinese menu. And I have all these kind of hipster Nashville friends who say, oh, there's no decent Chinese food in Nashville, but there is. It's just that they hide it. Um, So just two examples of, I think, experiences that are sort of common to a lot of people who've spent time in China, where it seems that the, the uh, some of it's the government, but it's not only the government. Some of it's the people. The the way they present themselves is not conducive to attracting foreigners. Does that make sense? That question. <laughs> well, yes, but let's not uh, let's not blame this too too uh, single mindedly on the Chinese. If I look at urban development or redevelopment in downtown Boston and some of the wonderful old streets that were torn down to put up high-rises. Uh, we, we had a period of doing the same thing. Maybe it goes with, maybe it's not centuries or millennia-long culture as much as it goes with uh, uh, efforts at rapid economic development. So, yeah, there's something in that, but uh, but I don't know. I'm intrigued. I had a Chinese student visiting with me, former student at the Kennedy School was visiting with me. We spent an hour or so together, and and uh, um, we were talking about changes like this in China. I mean, how culture is changing. Not, she said, "Well, you know, a lot of what we see today isn't going to be there tomorrow." She said, "I look at my friends, and they're totally different. They're much more American in their attitudes." Mm-hmm. And so, I, I mean, we don't know how much we're seeing. Um, residues of the past, how much will change. Reminds me of something that Lee Kuan Yew once said to me. 
in which he said, uh, uh, you're not going to really see the change in China until you have the sixth generation of leadership. He said, we're now in the fifth generation, but the sixth generation are going to be quite different. They will be, absolutely. Uh, so, I, again, I'm, I'm teetering on essentialism here, too, like Jeremy's last question maybe was. Uh, in my whole musing on Chinese soft power, I've I taken your definition very literally that, mm-hmm. you know, soft power is the power of attraction, not coercion or payments. And the literal part is attraction. And I've thought of it almost in terms of, of dating, of, of romantic attraction. And I, I mean, it's cliche, but often we hear that women are attracted to confidence and to a sense of humor, right? Then these are two things uh, that, that China doesn't quite get right. I mean, the confidence part, it tends to swing between extremes of also this sort of paralyzing shyness and uh, an inferiority complex that's very visible. And on the other, just sort of this bullying swagger. It just never settles into this comfortable middle part. And then with humor, I mean, I think, Jeremy, you can certainly attest to this, that Chinese people are really deeply funny, but just the humor has trouble translating somehow. I don't know what it, what it is. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I second that question. <laughs> well, I I defer to you guys because you lived uh, for years there and uh, have a much better feel for it. I, I'm a visitor. Uh, but what strikes me is that, um, you know, China's gone through extraordinary change at, a, at an enormous pace. So what we register as essential to China that we see now may not be essential in yeah, uh, another you're, you're decade. Absolutely right, right. Of course, I think we can leave it at that. I mean, what one day we will see, you know, Xi Jinping or some Chinese leader do something like the White House Correspondents' Dinner. Yeah. <laughs> well, we we're not going to see we've, that we've in America this year. So. No, <laughs> no, we're not. Which is interesting because we you know we can talk a little bit about uh, what, what's happened. You know. Uh, but let's 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 turn and talk about the global south. Yes, I, I'm particularly curious. I, you know, I'm from South Africa originally, and I mean, I've been going back to Africa more or less once a year, mostly South Africa for many years, and I encounter all kinds of different opinions about China, and it, it's very difficult for me to uh, figure out what is just anecdotal. Uh, Joe, do you have a sense in Africa and elsewhere in the global south uh, about uh, China's soft power successes? Has it built only literally concrete bridges, or is it building the other sort of bridges, the soft power ones? Well, I think there are mixed feelings. Uh, there is a good deal of admiration for what China has done. Uh, many countries aspire to do something like that. A few years ago, people used to say that the Beijing consensus would replace the Washington consensus as a means of development. The problem is that most of the governments are not capable of implementing authoritarian growth. Uh, I'm sure Robert Mugabe would love to have a Chinese rate of growth, uh, but I don't think he's up to it. But I think the uh, I think what I see uh, talking with Africans and, and, and on various uh, visits is a uh, a feeling that uh, China is very impressive. It's done some very good things, but there's also a certain resentment. There's a feeling that sometimes Chinese are arrogant. Uh, often they'll start a project uh, with building a road or a stadium and bring in Chinese labor, and Africans will say, wait a minute, we could do that. Uh, and the Chinese want their own control, and that uh, is uh, something that antagonizes rather than attracts. 
So the the money to build the stadium leads in an attitude in which somebody says, thank you. And when you see the stadium, you say, isn't that nice? The Chinese did that for us. But if in the meantime, it was Chinese labor rather than African labor, uh, that leaves a slight sour taste. Right, right, right. But at the same time, as you noted, the Pew poll seemed to show that the one area where China does seem to be sort of beating the U.S. in the global popularity contest is in sub-Saharan Africa. Oh, I no. Yeah, overall, right. that's what that's what I mentioned earlier. Sure, that sure, what, Africa is the area where China and the U.S. are closest mm-hmm, in soft power. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, let's let's uh, turn this around and talk about American soft power in China, which, by contrast with China's in the U.S., has been you know, a great success. I mean, the war that was once waged against spiritual pollution seems long ago have been lost, and the the, the deep and abiding affection uh, for so much of America's cultural output, whether it's from Hollywood or from Apple, you know, the hip hop or fashion or or what have you, uh, it's maybe. And even maybe more meaningfully, the affection for the American people seems very much undiminished. How would you uh, your your impression of of what's happening in China in terms of American America's ability to uh, to promote soft power, and, and whether that maybe faces any kind of a danger in the era of Donald Trump? Well, I think the I, if you look at the number of Chinese students at American universities who then return. Uh, you know, hundreds of thousands a year, uh, that does mean you have a younger generation which is more at ease with American culture. It doesn't mean they're American, they're Chinese, but but they're at, at ease in it, uh, with Americans. I Again, talking to some of my former students who've gone back to China and then have come back to visit here, and their, their, their reactions to the United States are much more sophisticated than you get from people who, who have uh, been brought up on uh, China Daily or Renmin Ribao or something that uh, uh, as a pure diet. So I do think that there's a uh, that Americans have a degree of, of uh, soft power there. And it's also interesting, just as a test of that, uh, the number of Chinese students who want to come study in the U.S. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's quite extraordinary. So I think that uh, uh, that there is a fair degree of American soft power. On the other hand, there are resentments as well, properly so. Um, the Americans have been seen as bullies, and uh, uh, in the past, uh, there's also a certain American cultural blindness at times. Uh, so, you know, you, it's not surprising that you, if if you look at netizens in China, um, there you get a fair amount of anti-Americanism on on some of these blogs. Um, but I do think that uh, there's a, a, a good degree of American soft power in China. Sure, absolutely. Well, let's, let's talk about the, the Chinese soft power opportunity to here in the era of Trump. I mean, it, it strikes me that China is in a position, at least on a number of issues, to really make you know, make friends and, and win influence among uh, Westerners, among, you know, Americans and people from other developed Western countries, especially after Xi Jinping's Davos speech. I, I sensed that people were ready to like China again, I mean, it, to see it really as the champion of economic globalization that it said it wants to be now. Good scientific sense on things like climate change in, in stark contrast to what we see coming out of the White House. I especially feel like China now has a chance to uh, win over some of the most intractable critics of recent years who are really really liberal intellectuals, people who have been very, very harsh on China because of its human rights record and, and things like that, but who are now, uh, you know, by contrast, ready to see it as, as more uh, a sort of 
globalist. Well, well, Donald Trump has been very damaging to American soft power all over. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the low quality of the rhetoric in the campaign, of the extreme nationalism of the inaugural address, America first, which I suppose means everybody else second, the uh, the tweets which pay little attention to truth value as they as they uh, stream forth um, all these have reduced uh, the attractiveness of, of the United States so we we've paid a price for uh, uh, the style and the content of what Trump has done uh, Xi Jinping's uh, Davos speech was very clever um, stepping in as the as the defender of globalization and of climate change uh, these were these were things that endeared him to uh, the Davos elites as well as others um, on the other hand, it's going to be a little bit hard because China's not quite as open as Xi Jinping made out to be in the uh, uh, in the uh, Davos speech. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, it's one thing to talk about globalization and openness and free trade and so forth, but it's also true that uh, China has a great firewall and the United States doesn't. Right. And, uh, you know, uh, Alibaba can act in the United States. Uh, Google can't in China. So I think I think she was 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 adept in using that period to uh, promote China as an open society and gain from that. But um, we'll have to see whether the facts follow the the words. Yeah, we hope they, we hope they do, but uh, we hope. Probably in there. Um, what about um, American soft power in Southeast Asia and the Asia Pacific generally? I'm thinking of well, the ASEAN nations and Australia in particular, which seem to me to be feeling uh, more vulnerable, perhaps, than anybody else to uh, Sino-American problems and also to the um, er- erratic pronouncements of Behavior Donald Trump. Of Trump yeah. Well, it varies, obviously, in such a vast region from country to country. And uh, I don't think, for example, in uh, areas that are traditionally strongly influenced by China, like Cambodia or Laos, and increasingly now Thailand, uh, I think uh, the American soft power is not what it was. Um, and in Philippines, it may be a little less because of Duterte, <laughs> though it's interesting the public opinion polls don't show that. Right. I mean, D- Duterte remains popular and the United States remains popular. So there's a disconnect there somewhere. As for Australia, um, my impression is that uh, uh, the Australians are cautious in some of what they say because they don't want to antagonize their largest trading partner, China. But at the same time, uh, I've yet to find an Australia Australian who thinks that their future lies with China rather than with the U.S. Even after the Turnbull call? <laughs> Even after the Turnbull call. I mean, Trump <laughs> Trump made a mess of that. But, <laughs> sure uh, but on the other hand, uh, the Australians still see their, their long-term alignment with the U.S. Sure, I, I tend to agree. Let, let's shift now to talk about the U.S.-China bilateral relationship and, and about the so-called Thucydides trap. Uh, so Fortune has very much smiled on this podcast. Uh, you spoke at the, the Duke-UNC-China Leadership Summit a couple of weeks ago about the topic, and uh, and we, we, we spoke briefly there. 
And just the other day, uh, here at Harvard, I attended the Harvard China Forum, where your very good friend Graham Allison, who's just authored a book specifically on China, the U.S. and the Thucydides Trap, was was a panelist. Uh, we also had a chance to speak about his book, which is going to be out on May 30th. It's called Destined for War, Can America and China Escape Thucydides' Trap? Uh, in the talk you gave at Duke recently and, and in the piece that you wrote, for, uh, excellent piece for Project Syndicate, uh, you were very critical about the way that Graham counted up those instances of rising powers and incumbent powers, you know, get, not getting along. So, um, and then the way that he counted wars to uh, what actually constitutes a case. Uh, can you elaborate a little bit on this? On yeah. First of all, I should say that uh, Graham's a good friend and his overall proposition I agree with, which mm-hmm, is mm-hmm. that managing the U.S.-China relationship. Uh, to make sure it doesn't become an open conflict is probably as important an issue as we face in foreign policy in the 21st century. So he's right on that. Uh, He should have put a question mark on destined for war in the title, but I suppose the uh, publishers always like to have a little alarmism because it sells. But I think my disagreement with Graham was when he tried to calculate other uh, cases and say that in uh, 12 out of 16, when a rising power confronts a established power, war results, which gives you the impression that that happens 75% of the time, mm. and therefore the odds against us and China uh, working this out are three out of four against us. That's That's just not good. I mean, that's not good social science because there is no such number as three out of four or 12 out of 16. Because when you look at what's a case, you can divide that into a few cases. You can make it three times as many cases. uh, And that is a weakness of the social science of the book. But the larger problem that he's pointing to, which is that very often where a, a rising power creates fear in an established power and that makes them edgier and makes them miscalculate and sometimes make make decisions which could precipitate conflict, that's a valid warning. And Mm -hmm. we ought to be uh, careful about that. Fortunately, I don't think that's very likely. I mean, I think that both uh, 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 China and the U.S. realize the importance of this. Now, I should qualify that and say that that was true before January 20th. Uh, uh, Trump is a very idiosyncratic figure, and we don't know whether he has as much of an understanding of this. Uh, Certainly, Xi Jinping has talked about this a lot, and he realizes that China's course uh, would would be badly altered if it got into a major conflict with the U.S. I think Trump understands that as well, and he's certainly surrounded by people like uh, General Mathis and uh, General McMaster and uh, so forth who understand this very well. Um, But, uh, you know, he he is a, a strange in the sense, when I say strange, I mean rare, in the sense that we've not had a president in the past who's been so idiosyncratic in his attitudes and so variable. And uh, so we don't know. I, but I, I think Trump understands this. As you said earlier, he quickly dropped the, uh, right, the declaring a currency manipulator rhetoric. Uh, he backed off of his brief flirtation with Taiwan early yeah, right, right, on. Right, sure. 
Uh, I hope he's going to have the good sense to continue in that thing. <laughs> I hope so, too. I want to apologize quickly to our listeners who, who may be hearing a banging noise going on uh, for the last f- 15 or 20 minutes. There's construction here uh, at the Kennedy School at Harvard, so uh, apologies. Jeremy, jump Well, in. it's a nice Beijing sound, actually. Um, I feel it, it makes is. me feel very comfortable. <laughs> yeah, um, Joe, as an extension to that question, um, you've emphasized that there are really two parts to what Thucydides actually said. It was the rise of Athens and the fear that this instilled in Sparta that made war inevitable. So you've argued, if I'm paraphrasing correctly, that the rise of China is a given, but you question whether the fear part is at all necessary. Is that understanding correct? And if so, should we be worried? Because Donald Trump is very good at stirring up fear, it seems. (laughs) He is indeed. Well, I think that is essential. I mean, the Thucydides uh, proposition was, as you said, the rise of Athens and the fear it created in Sparta. And so if you, people will sometimes say that that caused World War I, where you had the rise in the power of Germany and the fear it created in Britain. But the trouble uh, with translating that directly to the United States and China, the rise in the power of China and the fear it creates in the United States, is we don't have to be that fearful. Uh, Germany had already passed Britain uh, as the leading industrial power by 1900. Uh, China is not about to become more powerful than the U.S. I, I should put in a plug for my book that supports this. I wrote a book last year called Is the American Century Over? And there's a chapter in there comparing the power balance of China and the U.S. And people often exaggerate it. Indeed, another disagreement I have with my friend Graham is he selects numbers like using uh, strange measures of purchasing power parity for China's economic uh, uh, size, uh, which is not very good for measuring power, uh, which makes it look like China is about to pass the U.S. I don't think that's true. We have we have time before China is larger than the U.S. And even if it's larger at some day, around 2030 or so, in economic size, uh, it won't be more powerful militarily, and it won't have more soft power. Mm. This is a, not like Germany passing Britain in uh, 1914. And in that sense, uh, the problem is to make sure we don't become overly fearful. And it's one thing to take a book about Thucydides' trap and say, this is a warning to be prudent. It's another to allow it to stir up fear, which I think would be counterproductive. So it all comes down to that question mark after the first part of his title. That's right. I mean, (laughs) for me, I think uh, we have, we meaning uh, Chinese and Americans, have a good prospect for managing this relationship. For one thing, neither country poses an existential threat to the other. It's not like Hitler's uh, Germany or Stalin's Soviet Union. Uh, You know, we and the Chinese have plenty of room to uh, live together and and to cooperate. So um, you've answered part of this already. uh, But aside from, for example, neither country poses an existential threat to the other one. What are the other factors that for you mitigate the likelihood of actual conflict between China and the United States? Well, there are increasing number of areas where uh, our cooperative interests or our shared interests um, 
uh, outweigh our competitive interests. Competition among great powers is as old as human history and absolutely normal. And there are areas where we have such competition, and it's uh, uh, it may be difficult to manage. I would think the uh, South China Sea or East China Sea would be examples of that. But when you come to climate change, uh, which is one area where China has become a superpower, outstripping the U.S. in the production of CO2, um, we have an interest in China managing that and doing better by closing coal plants. And China has a similar interest in our managing that. And we both do better when the other does better. That's right. So there are going to be more issues that I call transnational issues rather than traditional competitive uh, uh, geopolitical issues. And climate change is one. Um, International financial stability is another. Mm -hmm. A breakdown Mm -hmm. in the international financial uh, system would be disastrous for China, disastrous for the U.S. Another one would be uh, transnational terrorism, where uh, if we aren't able to manage this, uh, it's going to be bad for our citizens in both countries. Another example um, would be finding rules of the road for managing um, uh, cyber conflict and cyber crime. So there are going to be a lot of areas where we have common interests in which we can't solve them by ourselves, and we can only solve them in working together. This will go on or coexist with competition. Uh but, you know, uh, the fact that, uh, that the cooperative dimensions in which we need to work together on these positive sum issues, uh, I think that's another reason why I'm relatively optimistic. Excellent, excellent. So rather than fretting about the Thucydides trap, you are actually more interested in another trap, uh, one that was described by Charles Kindleberger, who was one of the architects of the Marshall Plan. Uh, so what is this Kindleberger trap, and, and how does it pose challenges for the U.S.-China relationship? Well, Charlie Kindleberger was an, an economist at MIT who worked mm-hmm. in, in the government during World War II and after on the Marshall Plan. And he said, if you look back to the great disaster of the 1930s, the Great Depression uh, and the uh, genocide and the origins of World War II, uh, it grew out of the fact that Britain had been severely weakened by World War I and could no longer provide uh, global public goods like a stable currency or relatively open markets and so forth. And the United States was now the strongest country, but the United States retreated into a virulent isolationism Mm. and refused to cooperate. We passed the Smoot-Hawley tariff, which was sometimes called a beggar-your-neighbor tariff. And we refused to attend to the London International Economic Conference in the early 30s, which was designed to deal with international monetary policy. Uh, The net result is that we failed to step in when we became the largest country, and we acted like a free rider. Britain could no longer do it by itself. And And Kindleberger said that gave rise to the instabilities and the disaster of the 30s. I think the interesting question for why I think the danger of a Kindleberger trap is a reality is we have to ask the question whether China will help to share in the production of global public goods with the United States. And will the United States have the sense to share with China in that? 
Um, for example, uh, if you look at uh, Chinese attitudes, China often likes to say, oh, we're still a poor country. Don't ask us to do our share. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, China has stepped up to the plate on a number of things. It's a, a major contributor to the United Nations budget, the uh, largest contributor among state uh, great powers to UN peacekeeping forces. Mm-hmm. And uh, if you take something like the climate agreement in Paris, uh, China and the U.S. stepped up the plate. The U.S. now appears to be stepping away from the plate uh, under Trump. But uh, these are the these are the things that I would say are the modern Kindleberger trap. Right. This is what maybe Bob Zulick had in mind when he when he was urging China to become a responsible stakeholder. Exactly. Right. exactly. I mean, China and there are some signs that China is becoming a responsible stakeholder. Yeah. There are other areas where it isn't. If you mm-hmm. look at the Chinese rejection of the Law of the Sea Tribunal decision that went against it uh, in 2016, uh, that's a case of not uh, producing a global public good, of trying to be, uh, if you want, uh, uh, have their cake and eat it too. And I think that's that's a negative side of the ledger. But by and large, I think uh, it's plausible to imagine China and the U.S., Cooperating, the Americans made a big mistake in opposing the AIIB. I mean, if China wants to set up an organization to uh, finance infrastructure and developing countries, uh, that's a public good. Jeremy, we're hearing a lot of very good common sense here, aren't we? (laughs) Hearing a lot of very good common sense. What about One Belt, One Road? Because, I mean, it may be difficult to comment on because so far there's been a lot of talk and, you know, only incipient signs of action. But do you see this as a possible global public good? It could be. I mean, one of the, as you said, one of the things that's hard to tell is, is what it really means. There are parts of it that are traditional politics and uh, geopolitics, for example, of if in, if China builds a port in Pakistan at Gwador uh, and increases its position in the Indian Ocean, that could be seen as surrounding India. Indeed, that's the way many Indians surround it. Uh, on the other hand, if China is uh, built developing uh, infrastructure uh, in Southeast Asia or in Central Asia, uh, that may be all to the good as a public good. I think the, 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 the one, at this stage, we have a hard time judging this beyond a vague vision that Xi Jinping has propounded. But in, in and of itself, I don't see it as a problem. So uh, what would you identify? I mean, um, you, you mentioned uh, in the talk you gave down at Duke, that surprisingly, I mean, the South China Sea, you don't see as the big flashpoint. Well, I don't think the South China Sea needs to be a flashpoint. The The United States has taken a strong position uh, that we believe in freedom of the seas, which means freedom of navigation, uh, and that under the Law of the Seas Treaty, which China signed, you can't pour sand on a rock or an atoll and call it an island <laughs> right. with a 12-mile territorial sea, much less a 200-mile exclusive economic zone. And that's what the Law of the Sea Tribunal agreed. Mm-hmm. The United States will continue to sail freedom of navigation operations through areas that China claims. But as long as the Americans 
and the Chinese don't claim sovereignty over the same rocks, reefs, and atolls, then there is not something which needs to lead to a conflict. If China would give up the nine-dashed line, which tries to turn the South China Sea into a Chinese lake, and uh, would say they have disputes with Philippines, with Vietnam, with Malaysia over particular features in the sea, the Americans will say, we don't take a position on that. We want you to solve it peacefully with your neighbors. That's, that's grounds for a compromise because well, the, our interests are different. The, the actual de facto situation is though, that since the Lassen sailed that innocent passage, or they, they, some people called it a phone op, uh, there have been many. And these have not gotten a lot of attention. China has not made an issue of it. The U.S. has not raised this as an issue. And it, it seems to settle down. Is, well, that's is, is it. That I, 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 a successful FONOP, uh, Freedom of Navigation uh, Patrol, uh, uh, is done normally. Right. No, it's just not – you don't – you don't have to make a big fuss about it. You right. just make it clear that you're standing up for your rights to navigate in these waters. And uh, there have been a lot of them that have happened, and the Chinese don't say much. That's right. I mean, that, that I think, is, is cause for encouragement. Uh, Jeremy, wouldn't you say that we've heard a lot of very good common sense that, I mean, I find myself really nodding my head in agreement with Absolutely. this whole conversation. It's been, it's been great. Uh, I have to, to tell you, I mean, it's been such an honor. We're so grateful that you could take time to talk to us. Uh, uh, so please join us for recommendations to our, who are our listeners, won't you? Well, recommendations. I I should recommend my own book. You will. Okay, you get a chance to hang on. Let me let me uh, uh, pay some bills here first. I want to remind our listeners that the Seneca Podcast is powered by SubChina. Check out the app and subscribe to the newsletter at subchina.com. You can follow SubChina on Twitter at at subchina news and on Facebook at facebook.com slash subchina news. And if you like the Seneca Podcast, by all means, leave us a positive review on the Apple iTunes Store or on Google Play or wherever it is that you go to review apps. This really helps. It means a lot to us too. So on to recommendations, Jeremy gets to go first. What do you have for us? I found this website called Milestones, Commentary on the Islamic World. And uh, somebody named Darren Byler has published a piece on it with the rather academic sounding name, Imagining Re-Engineered Muslims in Northwest China. Uh, but uh, in uh, layperson's language, it's a, an article and a bunch of images of uh, mostly propaganda uh, that show Uyghurs in Xinjiang engaged in various activities from watching TV and uh, staying away from the extremist uh, mullah to uh, <laughs> striking down uh, terrorists who are drawn to look like rats. Um, uh, and uh, it shows, uh, you know, people... Um, uh, um, Succumbing to the blandishments of secular, yeah, materialistic um, Chinese you know, life. Right? Uh, so uh, <laughs> right. it's criticizing people for telling a guy he shouldn't sell beer and, you know, this kind of thing. Uh, but it's just a very nice collection of uh, propaganda from Xinjiang. Oh, I, I definitely want to check that out. Let's make sure that we put that up on SubChina. We will. Okay, excellent, excellent. Joe, what do you have for us? Well, it, it, I've already mentioned is the American century over. Besides, that's a little bit too self-centered. To, oh, no. Well, we, we but uh, <laughs> but let, me, let me tout something that's not quite out yet. I, a week ago, I went to a special preview of Ken Burns' oh. uh, new film of the Vietnam War. Oh, wow. It's uh, going to be that. 16 hours arriving in September, and I only saw about an hour and a half of it 
from various episodes in a special screening. It is just terrific. And anybody who is interested in Asia, anybody who's interested in the United States, anybody who's interested in history, uh, this is just it's not just good history. It's a work of art. I can't wait. I mean, so it's it's to the Vietnam War what the Civil War was. To exactly, the Civil War. Yeah. exactly. And it's and he's he's such a talented filmmaker. Uh, this, I mean, I love all of his films. Yeah, this strikes jazz, me right. as as uh, right up there at the top. Oh, excellent! I can't wait for that. So that's that's not standing recommendation. In that September, you say it's going to be September, mid September. I think they said it was going to oh, start. Can't wait. Well, I'll binge watch that for sure. Uh, my recommendation, uh, I was here at Harvard over the weekend. Um, I, I stopped in, spent all afternoon at the Harvard Art Museums. Um, the Sackler, of course, would be the one of greatest interest to listeners of this show. But really, every one of the, the collections, I mean, it features just an astonishing amount of, of uh, Renaissance oils that you can get right up to, I mean, inches away from, um, not behind glass. There's, it's just an astonishing, the, 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 the best 15 bucks I've ever spent. I mean, it was just what an afternoon. Of course, going through museums for some reason makes me more tired than going shopping with my wife. And I, I fell asleep promptly after coming home. But my my God, it was just, I, I had no idea that it was just such a, a fantastically good museum. Anyway, uh, thanks once again, Joe, for joining us. Well, this is fun. Yeah. And uh, I wish you well with it. Thank you. Thank you very much. Jeremy, it was great to talk to you again. I'll see you soon. Thank you very much, Kaiser. Thank you so much, Joe. That was a pleasure. Well, Jeremy, I enjoyed it, and Kaiser, you're great interviewer. Thank you very much. The Cynical Podcast is powered by SubChina and is produced by Kaiser Guo and Jeremy Goldcorn. Thanks also to Anla Chang and Sarai Darabi from SubChina. Drop us an email at Cynica at SubChina.com. We really love hearing from you. Visit our Facebook page at Facebook.com slash Cynical Podcast, and, of course, follow us on Twitter at Cynica Podcast. Thanks for listening, and we will see you next week. Take care. <laughs>